HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Stephen Phelps of Sarasota's Indigenous. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Steve about his pandemic restaurant journey, Trash Fish, and we'll hear Steve's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia once wrote, I closed my eyes and inhaled the rising perfume. Then I lifted a forkful of fish to my mouth, took a bite, and chewed slowly. The flesh of the sole was delicate, with a light but distinct taste of the ocean that blended marvelously with the browned butter. I chewed slowly and swallowed. It was a morsel of perfection. It was the most exciting meal of my life. There aren't that many people who can wax quite that nostalgic about a fish dinner. 
there aren't many people who cared as much about chefs as Julia. And there are few people whose entire lives and livelihoods have been more upended by the pandemic than chefs, especially those who run their own restaurants. COVID has put into stark relief how much we value being able to eat in restaurants and how much we've taken for granted what restaurants mean to our communities. Someone who sees their role as a chef, just like Julia did, is Stephen Phelps. Steve believes chefs are the pioneers and professors of food, and that the job is a way of life, one that includes not only nourishing, but educating diners. He's also a chef who is all all about great seafood. These are all things Julia valued, including humble fish. A two-time semifinalist for James Beard Best Chef of the South, Steve opened Indigenous in Sarasota, Florida 10 years ago. It's widely considered one of the city's best restaurants. Trained by his uncle, a military chef, Steve rose to prominence in his native Cleveland. Moving to Sarasota, Steve's heightened connection to the sea enhanced his love of seafood and led to greater involvement in national sustainability projects such as the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch Blue Ribbon Task Force. The task force comprises chefs from across the country who, like Steve, advocate against overfishing and for improved industry guidelines. Steve joins us today to share his COVID restaurant story and to talk about catching, cooking, and eating good fish. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So take us through that. What's, what's been your COVID journey for you, you personally as a chef and as a chef owner of a restaurant? Well, I first must say, um, after that Julia Child quote, I wish that every one of my diners would read that quote <laughs> when they took their first bite of fish at my restaurant. So um, our COVID journey has been a very unique one. I think that, um, you know, Florida's Florida's almost another country to us. Um, we have have had our ups and downs just like anybody else, but I feel very fortunate where we're at right now. Um, looking at it through different windows, of course. But uh, I believe that right when this began, we were right around St. Patrick's Day. I do remember it very vivid. People were making plans to go to these big parties. And um, once the, 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 the fan stopped spinning and everything happened, we, we actually all stood in our, our tracks at the restaurant and just stared at each other for moments. And you know, you took a deep breath and go, okay, now what? Uh, immediately, um, there was panic, of course, which is part of the word pandemic, I believe, somehow. <laughs> <That's a> good, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that that really, um, you know, we were in the middle of season. So Florida season is, you know, it's truly extended these days. But January through April is when we really make the bunny and Everybody kind of makes their nest egg there. So we were really uh, in the middle of some stuff at the time. But uh, right away, we had to decide what to do. Are we going to, you know, follow suit or should we shut down and start evaluating things closely? And, and that's what we did immediately. We shut down, said, OK, how can we make this work? Everybody canceled their reservation that week. I, I mean, the phones blew up and nobody was coming in. I decided to to start 
saying, hey, look, you know, we got to do something. We've got all this food here. It's going to go to waste. We decided to do whatever we could for takeout. Social media was a great tool at that time for us because we were able to say, I'm sorry, we're closed for seated dining in the restaurant. And if you'd like to order takeout, we can do that for you. But of course, people were in that panic mode, as I said, and people didn't even want to go outside. So uh, the other option was to get some food, get some food donated to some local areas that we knew would be affected immediately, too. And that was our initial our initial plan right when it all went down. And so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm struck by the feeling of the sort of first lockdowns versus this this. Um winter season is quite different, particularly at the very beginning in March, like you said, there was there was that huge feeling of unknown of like, how bad was this going to get and how deadly was it going to be? So people's reactions were different. So were you were you ever actually closed for that long? Or did you quickly shift to the kind of repurposing takeaway model? I think in the first week or two, we just stopped doing indoor dining. And you know, I, I'm not a fine dining restaurant. I'm a casual fine dining. I, I hate those kind of labels anyway, but it was like, you know, we're not going to have anybody come in here. I didn't even have takeout boxes in, in that type of scenario. Uh, you know, you had well-plated food that just wasn't going to work traveling in a box. So I remember hopping in my car and going to a local restaurant supply place and that place had been almost cleared out. Takeout boxes, sauce cups, you name it. It was almost all gone. Um, and we took it back to the restaurant and did takeout for, I think it was about two weeks. And then we, I think that's when the news was really getting bad. And we did finally just say, okay, we need to stop because now nobody's even going outside. And so did that mean that you had to lay off or furlough staff or what was the kind of um, impact there? We did, you know, the first affected people were my service staff, the servers, the host, the hostesses. Um, and it was, you know, front of the house took it really hard right away. I mean, we tried to have them tie in whatever they could answer phone for takeout orders. And uh, so there were some furloughs there. Uh, I had to take down one of my chefs. I had a sous chef that I had to lay off because at that point, you know, while you're wiping away the tears, you're just telling that person that I just can't afford you right now. I mean, this week I'll lose so much money and it, it, it was so difficult to go through that. But yeah, we lost the front of the house first and then uh, had to make a sacrifice in the back of the house too. And it, how much is that recovered? Because I, I feel like this is a really important point for understand for people to understand because I feel like well, A, there's a lot of variations in how it's been felt across the country, which is one reason I wanted to invite a Florida chef on because I'd heard different things. But that I think that speaks to the fact that even if you're doing a robust takeaway or outdoor business for a lot of restaurants, unless that was your original setup, it's still even if it keeps you going, it's still a pretty big impact. That's correct. I have, um, you know, I'm a smaller operation. We're only about 80 seats. So uh, I only had about six service staff. There was six servers and then we had server assistants and, you know, uh, a fine group of people who ran the front door. And, you know, right away, we just tried to figure out ways we could keep them on. And 
it, it just, it, it wasn't there. I was lucky enough to have an establishment where most of my front of the house team had other jobs, um, you know, other careers, I should say. And then some of them were still in school. Uh, so that wasn't as hard to take for some of them. They thought, you know, at that time we thought, Hey, okay, maybe this will be a few weeks or a month. Um, we'll see how it happens. But th that was very difficult to handle with them because the ones that didn't have jobs, you know, what do I tell them? You could come help run food out to the car, you know, four days a week and we'll pay you. I don't know what we'll pay you. That was the hardest part. And so how much have you been able to, maybe we'll combine this with one of the things I'd heard various reports of Florida, both with it having much better weather and I don't know, various, or maybe I guess bodily different impacts of the spreading of the virus, that the environment is different. But I kind of heard different things that actually I'd heard. I'll tell you what I heard, and then maybe you can tell me what the reality has been for you in, in Sarasota, is that, oh, yeah, people are still dining. It really hasn't gone away. And, you know, it's masking and social difference distance, but it's carrying on. But then I've also heard that particularly in Miami, fine dining was quite hard hit and a lot was shut. And a lot of people, restaurateurs have really suffered. So Kind of what what's your impression overall in Florida and and where are you in terms of your own business? Yeah, sure. I think that's a great way to, to explain it is we are definitely, as I said earlier, it's, it's almost like we're another country here. Um, having the good weather made people think that just to be outdoors, they were safe here. And we did have a lot of restaurants in our area that said, well, we're just going to keep all our outdoor dining open and, you know, business as usual. So uh, we did see a lot of that. Um, there is a handful of, I hate to use the word responsible restaurant owners, but there was a lot of them that really had that deep concern about not only themselves, but their employees. And it was a matter of, you know, do I just stay greedy and try to make whatever I can? Or do we really just protect everybody and not worry about that money right now? Um, the weather was a factor for sure. I mean, we had people ice cold up north. It was, you know, you had to, you know, staying in is a, a totally different story. But around here, people are a little bit more casual. And as we fast forward to where we're at now and where we've been over the past four months, um, you know, if you're from up north and you walk into, let's say you just flew into Sarasota and got off the plane and went to the downtown area, you'd actually for a moment think there wasn't a pandemic because it is very relaxed down here. And it's for people like myself who are very paranoid about this, um, it, it's quite frightening to see. And you're right. There was we were getting a lot of people coming from Miami to eat at our restaurant and use our beaches just driving across the coast because they were shut down in Miami. But Sarasota is three hours away. So, hey, let's hop in the car and go there for the weekend and party and eat. And and that was a lot of what started happening early. Um, you know, I would say when we got into the April, I mean, that that all happened around spring break, too. So it was kind of frightening. I was looking at our phone call list for takeout orders and things and people making reservations for the outdoor seating and all their area codes were the Miami area. So uh, that just showed that, you know, we still had some uh, some opening for people to 
to come and join us and enjoy the beaches and go to the restaurants. And we weren't that strict at the moment. And uh, we saw tons of them coming from the other coast. So, yeah, it was quite quite a challenge. And to me, as a chef, what kept my doors sealed as tightly as possible was when I heard from other chefs and people that, you know, they were losing their sense of taste and smell. I said, what? That can't happen. I <laughs> That is not going to happen to me. So, um, you know, I kind of used that that diagnosis to spread that around my culinary community and said, Hey, look guys, you're a chef. If you lose your taste uh, and, you know, sense of smell, I think you're going to have some serious problems down the line. Mm. And so you're, you're talking about April last year. So sort of more toward the beginning of the pandemic. And then I, but I'm assuming like, cause certainly things where I am got better during the summer so were you closed for sort of like a month and then when the summer seemed to be improving, things were quite open over the, the summer? Or I guess, or does Florida work in reverse where summer slow because it's so hot? Yeah, you know, summertime gets slow down here because it is really hot. So outdoor the outdoor dining depletes a little bit. But I was referring to how the summer went. Um, you know, we we were up and down all the time, so inconsistent to judge business. And I think, like I said, you were getting a lot of weekend business, people just coming over to use the beaches here because, I mean, you couldn't even go to some of the beaches on the other coast um, for quite some time as well. Uh, so we kind of went through the summer with not doing any indoor dining at my restaurant. Uh, I didn't open up indoor dining until late this fall. Um, and we took the baby step approach, you know, I'm two very small Florida cracker cottages and we had little private rooms in them that we just started putting a table or two in them at a time. And, uh, you know, to this day, we still are at 80% inside our building because I won't sit a couple areas still. But you're on 80% indoor dining and, and have been for most of the winter? Uh, I would say I'm at 80% for the whole restaurant. I'd say indoor dining still about 60. Okay. So you're doing, so you're doing 80. Okay. You're averaging out across your outdoor. And did you actually expand what you have outdoor compared to what you had historically? No, no. I was one of the people that was lucky in my outdoor area at indigenous is half of it's a wraparound porch and the other section had a covered structure. So um, you know, we didn't have to put a lot of umbrella tables up there and things like that. But, you know, it was tough for people in my area because they started getting permits from the city to do tables out in the middle of the street and Main Street and some of the areas around there. Um, but I kept my my indoor, you know, as low as I could. And at this point, as I said, I still just can't get myself to fill it all the way. It's an uncomfortable feeling. I'm guessing that's also you're saying that's in comparison to other restaurants in your part of Florida are some are doing 100 percent of whatever. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Well, clearly there's a market for people who have limited concern about that. Um, It's astounding from from where I sit. But I, I suppose thinking back to my summer and when you're at the beach and outdoor, it does it does sort of that environment can give you maybe a false sense of security because it seems safer. But do you think also diners experiencing that of all spectrums of chefs and restaurateurs, 
Do you think, though, that it's giving, particularly diners in Florida, kind of a false impression about how well restaurants are doing in in the current? Because there's still, as much as those restaurants might be full, there's still a whole cohort of people who are deciding to stay home. What's your your sense of that? Oh, yeah. I think, uh, you know, we see a lot of people coming from up north and like, oh, we're here. Thank God we could do things. We could go outside. We could breathe. We could play golf. We could walk down the beach. We could go out to eat. Uh, I think most of the people that are here who live here and maybe have not traveled in a year are the ones that are, you know, they're they're still a little bit shy of things, but they haven't really seen the difference yet. Um, so they're going to grocery stores and, and just living their lives normally, you know, but I've got I personally haven't traveled farther than this this town lately, um, maybe up to Tampa, which isn't far, but. You know, if you haven't been anywhere else, which is a lot of people around here, you do not realize the difference. And that is a conversation that goes on daily. And I've had I've had tables sitting outside where one is obviously from Michigan and the other one was born and raised in Florida. And the people from Florida would back up their table an extra foot, like actually get up, stand up and move their table an extra foot because of the conversation they heard from the people from Michigan. Oh, and that wasn't repulsion about the people coming down from Michigan. It was more the sudden realization of the Michiganers telling them what they'd experienced. Exactly. Telling them how they went shopping. They went to the movie. They did all this. And they're like, I thought you weren't supposed to do any of that anywhere. So, um, yeah, it's 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 quite the battle. It's it's you know, I hate talking about this, this uh divided country but now it's divided in a lot of different areas (laughs) it's 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 really tough to deal with in being a uh, hospitality person yeah no absolutely i mean well i mean this is exactly the kind of perspective i wanted because i'd heard these different things and and i'm conscious that like so many people are living different versions of reality and it's affecting everyone but in different and inconsistent ways that are just contributing to this sort of confusion and division and frustration no it, it's 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 kind of heartbreaking for me as a chef that works with some other chefs around the country um you know chicago new york california i mean i'm friends with chefs all over the place and you know you share show like a social media thing and they're like oh that looks great i'm glad you guys are doing good and then you talk on the phone or you're texting and they're like, oh, you got to go. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really busy tonight. <laughs> and they just don't understand that. And it makes you just it's very, very uh, heartbreaking to have a conversation with one of your, you know, co-workers in another state. That's not where your head is at right now. Yeah, that that is kind of mind blowing to like process because it's been such a devastating experience in so many parts of the country, particularly that are major dining capitals. So I was curious because part of that discussion has been uh, particularly speaking to chefs from New York and San Francisco and L.A., not quite sure um, as much in Chicago, but a lot of them are talking about how broken the restaurant model always was. But the pandemic has really shown that up between, you know, the true cost of labor and benefits for employees who've now been furloughed or lost their jobs and the costs of rent. Do you share that view from Florida or the dynamics in Florida different enough that it doesn't feel at least broken to that extent? 
No, I agree with that 100%. The model's been broken for years. I I have people that I don't know why they're always under the assumption that all the restaurants and and great chefs are are making wonderful amounts of money. Um, You know, most of us have done this for a passion and it's it's not only our craft but it's it's what we do for a living it 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 kind of surrounds us for every moment of our day you can't shake it you're you're cooking in the morning you're cooking in the afternoon you're cooking in the evening and when you go home you're talking about cooking and then you wake up and you repeat um I never, I never said to my wife, you know, yeah, hey, let's get rich and open a restaurant. I don't, that never happened. And, you know, we're although all would you recommend that's the smartest way to do it, isn't it? Get rich first and then open a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, if you want to spend your extra cash on a restaurant, that's a good way to lose your extra cash. But, um, you know, it, there's different categories of restaurants that you know, once once you're at a certain level, yeah, you're going to make a profit and things are great, but. It's it's like you're you're basically a support system for people who love what they do. And it's you know, we have a philosophy at indigenous, you know, uh, that I hire people who love people and love the planet. And that was always important because I I tell everybody who works for me, I'm like, you might not make a lot of money, but this is a really cool place to work. And we all love what we do. And and I think that nobody not I, I shouldn't say nobody, but around the world, people didn't understand it didn't take much to really put a bruise on a restaurant. I mean, bad reviews on trip advisors and all those, those are damaging. But, you know, when we're closed for a week, it, it, it kills you. You know, people talk about their equipment failing and whatever may happen in a restaurant. Something breaks every day in a restaurant. And, you know, an ice machine costs $8,000. An oven costs $10,000. It's just so much stuff. And so that model's been broken for so long and, and, you know, a lot of places don't even charge enough for their food and don't know how food costs work, but realized what food cost was this year. Uh, that is, that is for sure. Um, and, and I think the model is a little bit, you know, broken. And I think there's going to be a lot of restaurants that take that big step forward and say, look, food's more expensive. Our life, our you know, way of life has changed a little bit, and we're going to charge you a little more. But I hope you understand that a little more now. And 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 I think we'll see that from a lot of people. I think, you know, you've got your takeout programs that are opening, and your ghost kitchens and things like that. And and the reason they're doing that is not, not to shut people off from the from the working environment of the hospitality service, but it becomes a more profitable platform for these restaurants that don't want to deal with the chance of the loss again. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a really interesting thing that we're going to keep following of how this create or what kind of paradigm shift does it create? Well, we're going to come right back to trash talk fish. Uh, sorry. I mean, to talk about trash fish with chef Stephen Phelps. Stay with us. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. 
As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Stephen Phelps from Sarasota's Indigenous Restaurant about his commitment to sustainable seafood. So I'm going to take us off the, the pandemic course for a second. And uh, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'd love to just talk about food. And, um, and before we talk about fish, I, I just wanted to kind of point out, particularly in this moment in time, so you're not Native American. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you're not even a Native Floridian. <laughs> so tell us the story behind, you know, why your restaurant is called Indigenous. That's so funny because nowadays that the indigenous word is used quite a bit more than it ever had since I opened the restaurant. And I've, I wouldn't say I've had challenges with people saying, oh, I totally misread what your restaurant's about, but uh, we get it once in a while. So the, the, the reason we call our restaurant indigenous comes from a funny story that when I moved here from Cleveland 20 years ago, I really started fishing a lot with a, one of the line cooks I was cooking with. And I, I could tell you the moment because it's, it's, it's not a Julia moment, but it was definitely an indigenous moment for us. Uh, we were fishing in this really cool backcountry area for redfish. And there was a little broken down shack that was, I don't know, could have been like a servant's quarters or who knows what it was from the days. It was very old. And I was joking with my friend Danny and I was like, you know, we should we should just go in there and like cook fish sandwiches for all the fishermen who, who come by in their boats. And, you know, we'll just have this great little place and it's all tucked away in the woods back here in the in the, the swamps, so to speak. And I was like, what would we call it? Could it be like the mangrove inn? And the, the two of us said the word indigenous and we were like, oh, my God, that's a great name for a restaurant. And everything we use will be from here. Well, you know, we'll catch our fish, we'll grow our corn, we'll do all that. And it stuck with me for so long. And when I started establishing myself as a chef in the city, um, I, I realized that from Cleveland, a lot of people in this town really weren't using a, a lot of their own indigenous ingredients. I mean, you know, you had mussels and salmon on these menus and things that weren't even from here. And I was just so used to it. I started doing it and I started meeting some of the farmers around me, which I was just blown away by how many there were. And I was a huge fisherman. So I met all these people who could supply me fish. And so we, we used that as the title for the restaurant. And when we built the restaurant, we actually made sure that everything that we tied into there, even the, uh, the tables that we had custom built were from some cypress trees that were pulled from the swamps in northern Florida and milled. And that way we, you know, we put our, our blueprint there as, you know, we had workers, everybody who worked there on the project we hired were local, um, the tables, the chairs, you know, and using all of our indigenous ingredients, <clears throat> excuse me, ingredients is really what put that name on there. Yeah, and so it sounds like you were really kind of embracing the the local movement and eating early on, maybe not 
before it existed, but that that seemingly since you've opened the restaurant is have you've been all about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I wanted to call call it Steve's Farm to Fork Restaurant, but <laughs> that wouldn't have gone over too well. I think there's a lot of things being titled that. Um, so yeah, that was the that's what we were looking to do is just give it a name that people would understand that hey, we're in your town, we're using everything from in your town. And uh, we were huge community supporters to tell you the, the coolest story about how we got our logo from the restaurant was that we had a logo party where I cooked a bunch of fish out back behind this bar, invited all the people in the community that had businesses, restaurants, whatever, friends and family. And we laid out these tables with big pads of paper. We had chalk, markers, lipstick, crayons, sharpies you name it whatever you could write on it and we asked all the people who came to the party to sit down at the table and write what you thought indigenous looked like for a logo and when it was all said and done we had a huge pile of all these people who wrote out the word indigenous the way they thought they saw it and we ended up using four different people's uh, letters to create this logo for indigenous so it was really cool because the community actually did the design for indigenous that's great. So the name really signifies how you are part and parcel of the community that that you cater to and both in terms of diners and staff and ingredients. Correct. So let's talk about trash fish because it sounds like you're kind of an, become an expert on that. And I've not really talked. I know what's meant, but not talked about it before. So I wanted to ask you about it and w- what it means to you and what you think diners should know about it. Yeah, I think, you know, the word trash fish has taken on some some ambushes from some people. But most of that is usually from the the fishermen because they're like, how am I supposed to call sell this stuff if you're calling it trash fish? And I was like, would you prefer bycatch? And most of them said, yeah, that's better. Thanks. So, um, you know, we go back and forth with what we call it here. But to me, trash fish is just the fish that... um, most of our harvesting fishermen and organizations will, you know, go out, pull their nets or even, you know, there's so much pole caught fish right now um, that most of your market's looking for your snappers and your groupers and, you know, all the mahi mahi and things that people want, swordfish and things like that. And trash fish is really, um, when we say trash fish or bycatch, are the fish that are still delicious and for years and years just never made it to the market because a lot of the fishing families actually kept it for themselves. It was almost a secret that some of them were so good um, and not always in abundance um, of what they're going to target. You've got fish like uh, barrel fish. There's different types of porgy, which is P-O-R-G-Y. Uh, bee liners, mackerel, and, you know, even got your invasive stuff like lionfish, which I'm a huge uh, advocate for taking care of that species as well. But they're, they're all delicious. And, you know, we utilize that on our menu quite a bit because not only is a trash fish a very flavorful fish, it's not like we're putting something terrible on the table, which is that name is always so hard to get through. But we're educating people on on different things that they could buy when they go to um, seafood markets and help support fisheries. So, you know, you got a, a fisherman who's selling 
tons of snapper one day, but on his table at the market, there's beautiful red snapper and next to it is, you know, some mullet. This will make you say, wow, you know, that snapper is 20 bucks a pound, but that mullet's five and it was really delicious. We just had it at this restaurant. So um, it's been great to expose it and teach people what it is. Um, and it, it's really the market for it spread out over the past few years incredibly. And so what, maybe that example, I, I don't know enough about lionfish. You were saying it, it it's an invasive species, but it's also good to eat. Maybe could you use that as an example of like what you do with it at your restaurant? Yeah, sure. Um, lionfish has become a big movement over the past few years. Um, it's been like five years now because I seem to be missing a year. <laughs> I think yeah, we're all missing we a year. All, yeah. Um, yes. And uh, so lionfish is an invasive species that is not native to our waters down here in the Gulf and Atlantic. And they, they go, they're found all the way up into the Carolinas now, but they feed on uh, a lot of the bait fish. They're really, really heavy duty predators. And, you know, they can go into a reef and diminish it of all, all the bait fish in a matter of days. Uh, they reproduce at a super high rate and um, they're, they're destroying a lot of our, our ocean uh, reefs and environments. But what we did learn that uh, all these spear fishermen, which right now is the only way we could catch these little guys, they're delicious. I mean, it is a white meat, super flaky, like translucent when you hold the meat up to the light. And we started just taking advantage of it and you had really cool programs by organizations like the FWC, um, the Fish and Wildlife Commission that started doing these lionfish derbies to help educate people why we need to remove them from the reefs. And, you know, you had organizations like Moat Marine, which is uh, does uh, ocean research and stuff like that, that would do um, you know, research on them and have these little lionfish derbies, which chefs would come in and give tastings of them. And uh, it's blown up to the fact that at some point you can't even get a hold of any lionfish because they're selling them so much. And where's their native habitat? Where do they come from originally? And most of them are from and from coming from the Brazil area. Oh, wow. Off the coast there is really where they organized. Wow. And is there movement up, up above Latin America into the Gulf? Is that equated to climate change or that seems like they're moving from colder water to warmer water, but what, what is it attributed to? You know, personally, I think everything attributes to climate change. So I'm sure this is definitely part of it. Um, you know, not being native to these waters, it's, it's definitely changing a lot of the environment here. Uh, which is why they have so many tr programs now to try to eradicate them. Um, and in the words of my friend, Ollie, who's a spear fisherman, he said, you know, you go down there and see them, you know that we'll never eradicate them. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that if you have anything that's depleting a natural reef of its normal life, uh, it's going to have a dramatic effect on our, our planet. So it's maybe more Darwinian. These are just fish that have kind of superior survival capabilities and given the chance they've proliferated. Yeah, they've definitely, definitely are, are starting to uh, become the uh, 
the lead species in some of these waters. And what's your favorite catch that is local or relatively local to, to the Gulf Coast? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I'm still experimenting. Sometimes people bring me stuff I've never heard of, too. Um, you know, recently I had, um, what did that guy bring in for us the other day? Oh, they're called bee liners, uh, like a bumblebee. And the reason they call them that is because when they swim away from you, they kind of zigzag like that, which is a really teeny snapper, uh, uh, kind of in the snapper family. And the bee liners are, they're delicious. They're just really small, but very abundant, which is something that's very important for us. Uh, as chefs to make sure that they're they're abundant but that's been a local treasure as well and how do you serve a bee is it a fish you eat sort of the whole fish or serve them whole or what do you do with it yeah you definitely can do the whole thing with that which is super trendy these days um but they make like really great little fried fish pieces too you can just fillet off a little side which is probably as big as a as your thumb um, and just do a deep fry on them as well. But they're too big. They're not like white bait. They're too big or, or little anchovies. They're bigger than that. Yeah. You're talking just, uh, just about a pound at the max. And so while we're talking about this, do you think that the pandemic, um, or maybe it's too soon, but do you have a feeling like has, do you think it's had any kind of net benefit to the world's oceans just from the kind of constriction of travel and pollution or what do you have a take on that yet? I do. I do. I actually, you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of environmentalists here in, in this area. And also I have friends who are, you know, fishing captains for, um, doing just local tour day trips and stuff like that. And, and the fishing's been incredible. They have been fishing so well over the past six months. Um, a couple of my charter captain friends are booked every day, which also means how many people are down here. But um, they've seen a big shift in migration of fish already. So this year, there's a fish called triple tail which is a very good local fish as well. And usually they show up a little later, like in the spring, and they showed up a lot earlier this year. So they're seeing things like that that they have never seen, and they're just catching more fish. And so I think that between, you know, not a lot of people being here in the past year, and, and I don't mean here in Florida, I mean people on the water uh, not fishing as much, because you got to remember these fishing fleets have been shut down too. They didn't want to send out a fleet of boats with, you know, 15 fishermen on it all getting infected with COVID because that would ruin the business. So they were only sending one or two boats out. So the traffic on the water was very, very light. And I think globally, uh, this is going to help retain our oceans quite a bit. Well, that's great to hear. So it sounds like you feel like the, the reduced sort of traffic on the oceans has just helped the fish popula population recover or thrive a little bit more yeah absolutely you know uh, vessel pollution from some of these ships um, you know some of these vessels put out so many harmful harmful discharges from their boats obviously you could fuel and waste uh, go overboard for a lot of them that with that being reduced we are noticing globally that uh, there are some different fish migrations that are showing improvement 
um, which will improve catch. So this is a very good time for our organizations such as, you know, the Seafood Watch program and, and Moat and Monterey Aquarium who do try to keep these oceans healthy and protect the overfishing. It's a good time to say, hey, okay, now let's look at our numbers again and say, all right, this is a good time for these fish to really be coming back in better numbers. Uh, you know, we could put a restriction on again for six more months and really help that population grow back. So, yeah, this has been a great thing. Well, that, that's great to hear. I'm thinking about let, let, let's hope we can figure out ways to kind of sustain some of that. So after the break, Steve is going to come back with us and share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. For more from Julia, the new book of her quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People and Other Wisdom, is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia moment, memory, or how she's inspired them in their career. Steve, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> so I learned most of my cooking from my uncle at a very young age, who was a galley chef in the military, <laughs> and... Uh, one week I had to stay at his house. My parents were divorced, so my mom would take me to his house all the time. And I was rummaging through his shelves, and I found a Julia Child cookbook. And it was kind of, you know, a little ratty. It didn't look like it had been used very often. It was it was the mastering of the, the art of French cooking. And I asked my uncle, I was like, what's this? It's a pretty cool book. And he goes, well, that's my Bible. <laughs> And I was like, well, it doesn't look like you've read it very often. <laughs> and he goes, nope, that's what really got me. St-. He said, no, that's what really got me started into doing a lot more French cooking while I'm in the States because he was in Germany and France for many years. And I'm like, well, you know, tell me about it. And of course, a lot of those books didn't have pictures in it. So I'm just reading through it. And he was trying to explain to me who Julia Child was. And I was great. This is amazing. Cool. And I had already been, you know, envious of my uncle and trying to impress anything I could by cooking, whether it's a baked potato or whatever, I thought I was doing good. And then one night I was watching Saturday Night Live with my uncle and they did a skit, which was supposed to be a skit that was matching a Julia Child uh, cooking demonstration. And I said to my uncle, I said, is that Julia Child? He goes, that is not Julia Child. That is not her. She would never like this, and I can't believe this is on television. And I said, but she seems so funny. (laughs) He goes, she is funny, but that is not Julia Child. I want you to read the book, and I'm going to continue to educate you on who Julia Child really is. And I'll never forget that because that Saturday Night Live skit and my uncle telling me that that's not her will always stick with me forever. That's so fun. And Julia loved that skit. She didn't, she wasn't offended at all. But I think what's happened, I'm glad you can distinguish them because I think in cultural lore, <laughs> there are moments from that skit 
that people mixed up and, you know, have contributed to these views of what Julia did and didn't do on TV that people are adamant about. And oftentimes when they say things, I'm like, I think you're confusing it with what Dan Aykroyd did, not Julia. But but people are are persuaded that that some of these things happen that no one can find a record of. Yeah, that was a great moment, and I'll never forget that. And, you know, those are the kind of things that stick in your head. And as I continued cooking through my life, it was so cool to go back and grab those books off the shelf and relive them. And, you know, there were many more cookbooks after that that she had put together, of course. And, uh, yeah, a really good memory of not only my uncle, who who's not with us nowadays, but of her as well. Well, I love also the thought that there's like, you know, Julia had even military chef fans who were adamant about about her impact. Yeah, absolutely. And and apparently that was the uh, the premise for a lot of my uh, my uncle's, you know, menu items and, and things across the board. Wow, that's really neat. Well, thank you, Steve, so much for joining us today and sharing uh, your experience in, in Florida and in Sarasota and at Indigenous. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. And, um, you know, this is a great foundation that I, um, I support 100%. And, uh, you know, I hope we can all continue to take care of the planet and our seafood and ourselves. Thank you very much. And I look forward to the freedom to travel to, to get down to Sarasota and when you can be open exactly the way you want to be at Indigenous. Cheers. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Steve. To keep up with Steve and his cooking, it's at Indigenous Chef on Instagram and Twitter, and you can go to Indigenous Sarasota on Facebook for the latest menus and opening hours. As we talked about, you can go to seafoodwatch.org for more on safe fish guides and about sustainable fishing. For the latest from the foundation and about new podcast episodes, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at The Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.